Now, when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Now what's going on there is essentially he's giving orders to basically keep the gates open for as small as a window as possible in order for safety reasons. That's all that means. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut the bar and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first. And I found written in it. And I'm going to pause right there. I'm going to spare you all uh, the reading of this. Because what Nehemiah is essentially doing from here is he is cut and pasting Ezra chapter 2. He takes this genealogy, this list of families who were the first to come from exile into Jerusalem. And he cuts and pastes Ezra 2 and he, and he reads it uh, and puts it out into his own memoir. And you might ask, why does he do that at this point? And we're going to get into that. But before we do that, why don't we just pray? Lord, would you speak this morning for your servants are listening? Lord, if we're not listening, would you, by a miracle, by your spirit, create listening hearts in us? Soft hearts, tender hearts that are teachable, that are eager to learn. And would the truth of your word outweigh whatever it is that we're believing that's destructive to us? And would you lead us into life and worship this morning by your word? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I remember one hot day in the summer of 2009, Josie, my wife, was pregnant with our oldest son, Jude. And myself, we're driving in a, in a U-Haul and, uh, in our Jeep Grand Cherokee and all of our possessions across I-70 from St. Louis to a small single-bedroom apartment on King Avenue. And as we were driving and unpacking this church was just a prayer. It was just a prayer. We knew that God was calling us to plant a church, but we had no idea how that would happen, and we had no idea how God would use us to make that happen. We had no idea what it would look like. A few of you were there from the very, very beginning when we met in our living room. A few of you were there at the very beginning uh, when our children's church was our detached garage. Some of you were around when we met in the children's church room. Some of you were around when we met, started meeting in the church sanctuary. Some of you were there when we launched and we met in a conference room at the Hyatt Place, the very first thing built in Grandview Yard. Some of you were all there. And I said launch, but launch isn't really the correct image, is it? We were more like a seed that was planted in soil, maybe even difficult soil, the city of Columbus. And we watched as, as the word watered this soil, 
And as we started to grow and break ground and emerge, and then over the years, I've watched with my own eyes this sapling continue to grow and to continue to bear fruit. And so here we are. I mean, last year, almost 12 months ago exactly, we officially became Hope Presbyterian Church. And it felt like God was saying in that moment, y'all are legit now. You made it. I mean, look, we have a place to worship. The alarm system's a little wonky, but we have a place to worship. We have incredible leaders. We have, a, I think, a pretty good website. Our Instagram is off to a great start, isn't it? Right? We're killing it in the Instagram place. We have an incredible staff of one, but it's growing. I mean, we're at a place, consider this, where the Columbus Marathon cannot shut us down. Some of you couldn't make it, I realize, but we still had church, y'all. Dan John, uh, he's a very respected track and field coach. He's a thrower. He throws discus. And he loves to ask his athletes and he loves to ask coaches that he's training this question. Now what? Now what? You've achieved your strength goals, your fitness standards. Now what? Your coach and your team is up to the standards. Now what? And I love that question. I love that question. Think about it. We all have projects in our life, don't we? We want to we get the job, get the house, get out of debt, whatever it is. But what do we do when we get there? Now what? I love asking this question even about our walk with Jesus. Many of us have accepted the call of Jesus in our life. And we go to church. We're committed to finding a community, investing in a community. We serve on a team. We do regular devotions. We try to follow Jesus. We pray to Jesus. Now what? And I want our church to ask this question. One of the most one of the most horrible things that can happen to a church at our stage and in our lifespan is that it becomes self-sustaining. That's so dangerous. And that's what we are. We're self-sustaining. It is a thing to celebrate. God has been faithful. But it is also something to be very cautious about. Because when a church becomes successful or self-sustaining, then who needs to pray? Who needs to take risks? I mean, a night of prayer, if we were advertising this night of prayer when we were brand, brand new, like sitting on the couch, brand new, children's church in the kitchen, brand new. If that's where we were, that prayer night, we would be clinging to that thing like it was our lifeline. But now that we're we're, we're, we're okay, we're self-sustaining, Columbus Marathon can't kill us. Before the Super Bowl killed us, guys, the Super Bowl killed us because we met in the evening. That was a terrible Sunday. Where is sacrifice when you're comfortable? If you think about it, Nehemiah must be asking the same question. So consider this. After a century of work, a hundred years of renewal effort, after being in exile, like being literally, not metaphorical exile, like literally taken out and seeing God's house, the place where God chose to dwell, completely abandoned. 
Okay, so after hundreds of years, after hundreds of decades of that, they come back and they are beginning something that took a hundred years. And here is Nehemiah standing at the very end of a job well done. It's amazing. And you get the sense in verse 1 if you take a look. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors... In verse 2, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. You get the sense that Nehemiah is like, this is done and dusted. I'm out of here. I'm going back to my cupbearer job. I had a good paying cupbearer job at the capital Persian Empire, and that's where I'm going. And I'm going to appoint you guys to be leaders, and I'm out of here. This is over. You get the sense that things have been completed. Nehemiah might be asking the same question I am about hope. Now what? So I think this chapter, chapter 7, is a great resource for us. We are, uh, we are young, but we're also dangerously established. What can we learn from Nehemiah? What is the answer to the question, now what? Well, the answer, according to chapter 7, is not... Increasing complexity. It's not moving even to new things. The answer according to chapter 7 in Nehemiah is a return. A return to the basics. This is what Nehemiah does. And there are three returns that I see in this chapter. And the first is this. We need to return to the centrality of of worship. The first thing we need to do is return to the centrality of worship. Worship is the reason we exist. Did you know that? Worship, ascribing fame, ascribing worth, ultimate worth to God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and then expressing that as a community. That is the reason we exist. One, one pastor puts it this way. Missions, or you could say church planting, or you could say evangelism, whatever. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Hope exists in the city of Columbus because worship doesn't in the city of Columbus. And you see that this is exactly true in the renewal effort of Nehemiah's day. Again, verse 1. Everything's done and dusted. The wall has been built. The doors have been established. And then look what Nehemiah does. And it's a peculiar little verse. And it sort of stumped me when I was studying it. I'm like, what on earth is going on here? But it makes sense when you think about it. He says, the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites. So the singers and the Levites would be like the John Christ and the Joe Hack, right? The worship singers... The leaders of worship in terms of song. So we have John, we have Andrea, anybody else who has served on this team so faithfully. And then we have anybody who sort of helped in the leading of the worship. And he's sort of appointing them. And it's sort of weird because he's talking about protection and safety and walls and who's going to stand guard. And he says the singers and the worship leaders. 
But it starts to make sense when you consider that that's the whole reason they're building the thing. Worship. And Nehemiah is a good leader. He's establishing that, reestablishing that. He's saying things are done. Let's do what we were called to do, which is worship. We are a worshiping community. And so I think this tells us two very important things. Number one, worship will always be greater than our projects. We must never confuse the building of God's house with the worship that is to take place within God's house. Think about that. I mean, we are building something and it's fun. It's fun to build. There's an entrepreneurial uh, uh, sort of uh, energy that we get from being a part of something young like this. But we can't ever, ever, ever confuse that with the point, which is worship. Which is worship. If you think about it, they built for a hundred years. And when Nehemiah finishes, he says, in effect, let's be sure to worship God, not this building. We may not have the temptation to worship this building, especially on a Sunday like today. But when we have our own building, Lord willing, we will feel that temptation. So let's just, as preventative medicine, take the pill right now and say, let's not ever confuse the building for the worship. The energy, the sap, the whole point of what we're doing here. I mean, we can meet in the parking lot and be Hope Presbyterian Church. We can meet in the parking lot while it's raining and be Hope Presbyterian Church. We could, as the underground church in China does, we could meet in the basement sort of three at a time and be whole Presbyterian church. The building's not the point. The project's not the point. The website's not the point. It's the white-hot worship of God. That's the point. I think we learned something else, too. I think we learned that worship ought to be greater than our skill. Our skill. So worship is greater than our projects, but worship also has to be better than our skill. We are a skilled group of folks. We have a lot of gifts in this space. We have to remember that worship takes precedence. So we see this in his appointing of his brother and Hananiah in verse 2. If you take a look, why did he appoint Hananiah? He appointed Hananiah because it says he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. So even Nehemiah, who appreciates competency, places character above competency. And that's the same of us, too. We must never get so enamored with our, with our sort of skill sets that we all have, and we have them all, that we forget that the whole point of this community is discipleship. It's growing in our worship of Jesus. And so the church must never lose its basic purpose, worship. I remember really early in the church planting uh, effort, many, many years ago, I ran into a friend, Gabe DeGarmo, who's also a church planter. And I said to Gabe, I said, Gabe, let's get together and let's talk about our craft. Let's talk about our craft. And what I had in mind was let's build our skills together. And he, in not a uh, sort of condescending way, not in a way to put me down, he just sort of said, what if, you know, he's like, that's great and that's valuable, but what I need help in, Joe, I need help in discipleship. And I need help just meeting with people and then, like, worshiping Jesus. It wasn't a put down to me, but it was a reminder to me, and he didn't mean it to be this, that I was putting competency, I was putting skill sets 
over and above the importance and prerogative of simple discipleship. It, it was amazing. The other day, I walked into a coffee shop and I saw some, some folks from our church meeting, an intentional meeting, just meeting together. It wasn't a program that we threw. It wasn't some kind of initiative that we had as a church. They were just meeting and talking and putting stuff on the table and encouraging each other. And that is a beautiful picture of this church. That's what this church is called to be. A church of worship. Are we spurring? Are we pointing to each other? Are we pointing each other to Jesus? So the centrality of worship means we must never confuse, I think, the trellis and the vine. An image given to us by someone else that I find so helpful. The trellis and the vine. So here's a picture uh, by Van Gogh. And it's of an old vineyard. And you'll notice that there's vine. There's, there's grapevine that's growing up. And you'll see the trellis underneath that's hoisting up this vine. This is a beautiful picture of the church in my mind. Because God often equates His people to a vineyard. He says that we are His choice vineyard. And if you think about it, in order for grapes to grow, they have to get off the ground. Otherwise, they become a clump of sort of just mulch, you know? They don't ever grow. They don't ever produce fruit. So we need a wooden trellis to sort of get the, the vine off the ground. And it's a really important image to think about if you think about church, because we are the vine. We are the vine. And, and you know, connected to Jesus, that's our identity. The true vine, Jesus, we are now the vine. But it's helpful to consider that for us to flourish, for us to grow, we need some kind of trellis. And that's the church. The church and all of its sort of structures. But what we must never do is confuse or even prioritize the trellis over the vine. They're both important. But the whole point is to see the vine grow. And I see in Nehemiah chapter 7 a charge for all of us to never confuse the trellis for the vine. Once that trellis was built in Nehemiah's mind, he says, let's get to vine work. Let's worship. Okay. We need to return to the centrality of worship. It's a return. Now what? Worship. Always will be. We will cease to be a church, actually, if we lose this. We will cease to be a church if we lose this. What else? Well, I think we need to return to the centrality of relationship. And two kinds, our personal relationship with God and our, rela- our relationship to each other as God's people, okay? In other words, what do we do once we're established? We return to the basics, worship and now relationship. And we see this in verse 5. Check it out. In verse 5 of chapter 7, Nehemiah says, Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled. And what I want you to notice is that Nehemiah was walking with God. Don't miss this. Sometimes we think the Old Testament God is, you know, first of all, a different God than the New Testament, which is not true. Uh, but number two, we think if it is the same God, he was much more aloof and distant. Nehemiah just explodes that concept for you. He was walking with God. And God placed something on his heart, which requires relationship. Think about it. God for Nehemiah is not distant, but close enough to his heart to lay something on it. God is not impersonal to Nehemiah, but personal. God is not an abstraction for Nehemiah, 
but real, alive. And Nehemiah is walking with him. This is a challenge to anyone, I think, who only knows God through their minds. I love how David Benner puts it. He writes, Looking back, I find it remarkable how easily I accepted ideas about God as substitutes for direct experience of Him. It took me a long time to begin to know God through my heart and not simply my head. I like how he put that. He says, not simply my head. We all know that we need to worship God with our minds. We all know how important the life of the mind is. I don't think you honestly would be sitting in this church if you didn't have a high priority of the life of the mind in the Christian life. That's not a concern of mine. What I am concerned, though, is that your posture towards God is only rational, not relational. It's only ideas about Him and not relationship with Him. The same here. That's a struggle for me. I mean, let's be honest. Is your relationship personal enough to be able to say something even remotely close to what Nehemiah says in verse 5? I mean, do you have a relationship with God? I struggle here. I do. I struggle here. I often think that God is just an idea in my head and, the, and not the living God who can put things, who can lay things on my heart from His Word. And so we need to return to relationship. That's what we do. Now what? Hope? We return to relationship. I'm at a stage in my walk with Jesus where I am returning to so many of the postures when I first encountered Him. Because when I first encountered him, it was a relationship. And then as I started to learn about him, which is an important project, I started to abstractize God. And then life hits you, amen, and you bleed. And then you say, oh my goodness, Jesus. And he is a relational presence in your life. Not merely a page in your systematic theology. And that's such good news. That is such good news for sufferers. That is such good news if you're in a season of darkness. He is present and He is relational and He is there. I think we also should return to our relationship with each other. Okay, simple. Remember, returning to basics. We return to worship. We return to relationship. Not just our relationship with God, but God's people. God's people. Nehemiah cuts and pastes Ezra 2 in his memoir, as I talked about. We didn't read it all, but if you scanned across it, starting in verse 8, you'll see a bunch of names of families and then a bunch of numbers following those families. And you'll even see some of their calling, like what they did when they arrived. I'd like to suggest to you that this cut and paste of Ezra 2 is essentially an ancient church directory. 
Who grew up with a church directory? Anybody? Church directory? Like old school, right? Olin Mills would come into your church, <laughs> take those pictures, and you could order the, the, the sort of Olin Mills sort of oval picture that was like kind of a picture, but they tried to make it look like it was oil painted. And, you know, you could do that whole thing, right? And then you had all those pictures, and then occasionally there'd be a family that says, you know, not available or something, and it'd be a silhouette of a family, and you always feel bad about them and sort of judge them. Well, well, this is an ancient version of that. This is a church directory. It's been said that the most important book in your life, if you're a Christian, is the Bible. The second most important book in your life is your church directory. Because it's all who are united along with you to Jesus. They're your brothers and sisters. They are, provocatively, your primary family. Jesus is sitting with his disciples. His, his family comes alongside. They're like, Jesus has lost his mind. Come back, join the family in our family ways. And Jesus says, and looks at his disciples and says, this is my family. And do you realize that whether you like it or not, I know there's some crazy aunts and uncles in here, but this is your family. We are connected to others, whether you like it or not. And this, I think, confronts one of the biggest myths in our day, the myth of individualism. Me, me, me. It's just me and Jesus. We're all so individualistic. I think we even gloss over big texts like this and sections like this, not even considering for a minute that these were the lifeblood passages for the ancient people of God. Why? Because it gave them and reminded them and connected them to a people. And the ancient communities understood that. They understood that we are nothing without community. And here they are being legitimized as a community. Ezra is saying, this is who you are. And so we too need to return to the centrality of relationship. We have relational souls. Our souls are not meant to be in isolation. They do not thrive in isolation. In fact, they wither in isolation. When you're in isolation, it's like having a cast around your bone when you don't need it. And after a year, it's going to be mush. What we need is we need relationships. We need people in our life challenging and strengthening our souls. That's how God made our souls. What else? But we need to return to the centrality of assurance. In our passage, Nehemiah quotes Ezra 2, as I said, in its entirety. Why, though? Why? Well, to quote Derek Kidner, and I'll say this quote twice because it's that important. Nehemiah's main concern was to get his people rightly oriented sure of both their inheritance and their calling. Nehemiah's main concern was to get his people rightly oriented, sure of both their inheritance and their calling. And this is crucial for us today as well, because I believe that the root of every one of our problems, mine and yours together, the root of our issues is a lack of divine assurance. But we have a greater Nehemiah who wants to assure us of our inheritance in him. 
All of this points to the greater Nehemiah. And it's as if the greater Nehemiah, Jesus himself, is here by the Spirit with his words saying, Y'all have an inheritance in me. All of this genealogy climaxes in me. And let me just tell you where you stand if you are connected to me by faith. And so what I would love to do for the rest of this time that I have, about five minutes, is I would just love to remind you and therefore assure you of what you have in Jesus. And that's all we need to do as a church. If every single Sunday we show up and we remind ourselves of the assurances that we have in Jesus, then we'll be okay. We'll be okay. We return to worship, we return to relationship, and we turn to the assurances we have in Jesus. So, listen to these truths. In fact, in the spirit of Nehemiah, open your heart to these truths. Let them wash over you. Not just filter through your rational brain. Let them wash over you. Let them go from your left brain to your right brain as well. Ephesians 2.10 says, You are created in Christ Jesus. If it helps, close your eyes. Galatians 2.20 says, It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ lives in you. Colossians 2.12 says, You've been buried with Jesus in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith. You were buried with Jesus and you've been raised with Jesus. Romans 6.3 says you have been united with him, Jesus. Ephesians 2.6, the Lord raises you up with Jesus and seats you with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Present tense, you are in a true significant way right now as you sit in this uncomfortable chair with Jesus in the heavenly places at his right throne. Galatians 4.19 says, Christ is formed in you. Ephesians 3.17, may Christ dwell in your hearts through faith. 1 Corinthians 6.15, your bodies are members of Christ's. 2 Corinthians 13.5 Do you not realize this about yourselves? Paul writes that Christ Jesus is in you. Ephesians 5.31 describes our relationship to Jesus as that of a marriage. We are that united to Him. And I could go on, but here's the point. This is real. This is real. This is real. Jesus is real and you are in him and he is in you. And so you can rest and have assurance. What it means when you are in Christ is that everything that is his is now yours. It means you're secure in your status as forgiven and always will be. Because you're united to him, you're connected to Jesus. Romans 8, 1 says your sins cannot and will never condemn you. Do you feel condemned? Do you struggle with feelings of condemnation? Remember, you are in Christ and in Christ there is now therefore no condemnation. How could there be? 
How could there be? All of you is in all of Christ. You can be secure. You can be secure of your status as righteous. So Jesus not only died for you, do you know that Jesus also lived for you? The beautiful, others-centered, God-centered life of Jesus that we just have a scratch of a witness to in the Gospels. He did that for you. In all the ways that you are very unchristlike in your self-centeredness. He did that so that when you connected to him by faith, that perfect, lovely obedience and others and God-centeredness would be clothed, wrapped around you so that you could stand the rest of your life secure. Amen? (laughs) Luther once wrote this, Christ and I must be so closely attached that He lives in me and I in Him. What a marvelous way of speaking, he writes, because he lives in me, whatever grace, righteousness, life, peace, and salvation there is in me is all Christ's. Nevertheless, it is mine as well. By the cementing and attachment, those two words, the cementing. The cementing and attachment that are through faith, by which we become as one body with Jesus by the Spirit. We are cemented to Jesus. You're secure. You're also secure in your status as the loved child. Connected to Jesus, you now have a new family. Jesus is your older brother. God is your heavenly father. Galatians 3 says, For you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, let me just say this real briefly. I don't take it for granted that all of us feel this assurance. Maybe none of, maybe one of you out here hasn't really embraced Jesus or laid hold of Him. Or perhaps you thought you're not good enough to do that. Well, let me just say, if I haven't convinced you already from Scripture, if God hasn't convinced you already from Scripture, the whole point is you're not good enough. Jesus is. What you do is with empty hands... Dirty as can be, of course, you wrap them around him and you cling to him. And when you do that, your status changes forever. Forgiven, righteous child. You are a child of God, and that will never change. That will never, ever change. Return to what is yours in Jesus. The writer Henry Now, and he would say this. You need to stop looking at yourself through the eyes of others. And start looking at yourself through the eyes of your Heavenly Father. Let me say that again. You need to, in Christ, stop looking at yourself through the eyes of others. You have many admirers in your life. And you have probably some critics. And they might be the same person sometimes. 
And if you're like me, your tendency is to sort of just hang out with the people who like you because you are looking at yourself through the eyes of others. Or if you're walking into work or if you're walking in your family life or you're walking in something else and you know people don't like you or perhaps you're not sure if they like you or not. Maybe they don't think you're cool or hip enough, whatever it is. You feel radically insecure. Why? Because you're looking at yourself through their eyes. Now, what if you instead looked at yourself through the eyes of your Heavenly Father? What you would see is the perfect, secure righteousness of Jesus. And you can rest. Lord, we come to you and we return to you. Uh, We acknowledge that we need nothing more than to sort of return to the basics of, of worship, of relationship, and assurance. Thank you for giving that to us this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.